Acts chapter 13. I want to quickly refresh you from where we have been. If you will look at the screen here. So in the book of Acts, as we talked about in the last few weeks, there was a persecution started at the bottom of the screen in Jerusalem that led many Christians to go north. A lot of them ended up in Antioch. Antioch, that church right there, becomes the home base for the Gentile missions that are going to happen throughout the book of Acts. Paul and Barnabas both end up in Antioch, and they end up sailing, like we saw last week, down to the island of Cyprus. They land there on the uh, east coast on Salamis, and then they make their way through the island, and they end up at Paphos, which is where you saw the confrontation between Elamus, the, the magician, remember Bar-Jesus? And then he was the one practicing really black magic. And then there was also Sergius Paulus, the Roman proconsul who believed the message. Paul sharply rebukes Bar-Jesus, the false prophet. And then uh, in today's passage, you're going to see they're going to be in Paphos, and then they're going to head up to the coast here of Perga. They're going to be in Perga, and we're going to get very little information about what happened in Perga, but no doubt they preached the gospel to some degree there. But then today's passage takes place up here in another Antioch, Pisidian Antioch, or Antioch of Pisidia. And just so you know, if you, if you can just sort of see these cities here are going to be the cities that are going to come up in the rest of Acts 13 and Acts chapter 14. Just so you know, for future Bible reading, these are the churches that the Galatian letter is almost certainly written to. These are, the, these are the churches of southern Galatia, and Paul writes the letter of Galatians just maybe a year and a half later from where we are right now in Acts. So, he's going to plant these churches, he's going to leave, and then soon after he leaves, false teachers, the Judaizers, are going to come in and demand things that are not true of the gospel, and Paul has to write the letter of Galatians back to those very churches. But today, we will be focusing there in Pisidian Antioch as our primary place. Also, interestingly enough for today's passage, we are going to hear Paul's first sermon. Well, it wasn't his first sermon. It's the first one we have recorded. So, this is the earliest teaching we really have of Paul. None of his letters have been written yet. His first letter is almost certainly Galatians, which will be written in about a year and a half. And so, right now, this is the first real teaching from the Apostle Paul we hear in his Christian life. And he's been a Christian for a little over a decade at this point, uh, very likely, maybe even a decade and a half at this point. My sermon today has three points for our passage. Number one, promises made. Number two, promises kept. And number three, response required. Promises made, promises kept, response required. And I got those words, promises made and kept, by uh, Mark Dever wrote, uh, well, it was actually he preached one sermon on every book of the Bible. So, he preached 66 sermons covering every book of the Bible in an hour-long sermon, and then he put them into written form, and the first volume is about 800, maybe 900 pages covering the Old Testament, then he has a New Testament volume, but he subtitled those books, Promises Made for the Old Testament and Promises Kept for the New Testament, and that's, that's where I'm getting those words from even in my mind today. Promises made, promises kept, response required. So, let's look here, a few introductory comments still before we really dive into the main part of the passage. If you look back Uh, earlier in the passage, when Paul is sent off with Barnabas, Barnabas' name is actually given first. He's listed first ahead of Paul. But uh, when they leave the island of Cyprus in verse 13, Paul's name appears first. Now, it seems as though Paul is leading the group in a way that maybe Barnabas had been. Uh, Very likely what happened was as they were teaching in the synagogues in Cyprus and they were evangelizing, Paul just sort of rose to natural leader, and he becomes apparently the leader of the group at this point, because it says in verse 13, now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. We're also told 
and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. There's a couple comments here. First of all, we're told in Galatians 4.13 that Paul was forced to go north and go to those, those cities you're about to look at. He was forced to go there because of some kind of ailment or illness. He says, you know, he says, you Galatians would have plucked out your eyes and given them to me because of the, the, the physical issue I was dealing with. So, whether it was the physical effects of him being nearly killed, which is possible at, at the, in, the, in these cities coming up, or if it's a, an actual disease, which I think is very possible, Paul ended up preaching the gospel first here because of physical ailments uh, as he headed north. Interestingly enough, John or John Mark leaves them at this point. Now, nothing is really said about this. He just says he left. He went back to Jerusalem. But later, as you may know, at the end of chapter 15, this comes up again as a pretty in sore point of disagreement, and we will have a whole sermon on this later, so I won't say much now, but let's just put it this way. Paul thought he should not have left very strongly, and Barnabas probably agreed, but he thought, let's give him a second chance, and Paul doesn't think he should, and they get into a disagreement, actually, at the end of chapter 15. We will talk about Christians dealing with conflict when we get to that sermon into 15, that should be a couple of years from now when we get there. So, that'll be a few months from now before we get to that passage. But John Mark leaves them. Why did he leave? It's hard to know. My, if I'm just guessing, there's probably, I think I read maybe eight or ten guesses. Probably it was a combination of homesickness. He was still probably younger in the group, and going with that was probably a sense of fear because Paul is going to be stoned nearly to death in a, just a few, uh, story, about two stories ahead. He gets stoned nearly to death. I think John Mark was getting nervous, perhaps, and he decided to head back, uh, head back homeward to Jerusalem where his, his uh, home, his family's house was. Verse 14, but they went on to Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia, and on the Sabbath day they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have a word of encouragement, a word of exhortation for the people, say it. Just to give you a sampling, because we don't tend to think about this necessarily, synagogue services, going back to almost this time, we have a structure of how they would typically go. A synagogue service would begin, this is on a Saturday on the Sabbath, in, in, there's some parallels with a, with a church and a church building and a synagogue and a synagogue building. There's a few parallels. And they would gather together in their synagogue building uh, on a Sabbath, and they would begin with the Shema, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, from Deuteronomy. And then there would be a pronouncement of blessings over the people. Then there would always be a reading from the Torah. That's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the first five books of Moses, the, the five books of Moses. They would read from the Torah, and what would happen was every three years they would read all of the Torah. So they were reading a pretty good portion every single Sabbath, and then they would have a reading from the prophets. And sometimes if there was a well-known visitor or a special guest, the special guest would be asked to give a word of exhortation based on the passage. Do you remember Jesus being asked to do this in Luke chapter 4? He goes back to his home synagogue in Nazareth, and he sits down, and there's the reading of the prophets, and what happens? Jesus is asked to give a word. Wouldn't you love to be there when Jesus is giving the message? And Jesus gives a very short message, okay? Jesus gives a very short message. He reads part of Isaiah and says, this passage has been fulfilled in your hearing today, and he sits down. Maybe that's why it was so short. He could just say, I did it, and he could just sit down. But Jesus says, I am the one fulfilling this. I'm the servant that Isaiah is speaking of. Uh, I am the, the servant of the Lord. And the people heard him gladly at first, and then later they did not respond uh, as well to him. But here, Paul is asked to give a word of encouragement. It may interest you to know that that word of encouragement, the same phrase in the original language, appears in Hebrews 13, verse 22. 
Now, do you remember the book of Hebrews? To read the book of Hebrews out loud, at least in English, takes at least about 45 minutes. And the book ends by saying, thank you essentially for listening to my word of exhortation. He says, I've written to you briefly. Interesting. But that word of exhortation was almost a way of speaking of a sermon, a word of exhortation. That's what it's called here. Give us a sermon, a word of exhortation. And the author of Hebrews apparently saw his whole book as a sermon written down. It's a word of exhortation. And uh, I just wanted to try to defend myself here. It took about 45 minutes to read that. And he called it a brief word of exhortation. <laughs> so I'm kidding, but am I? Okay, so th thinking through here, Paul is asked to stand up and to speak. And Paul gives what is clearly not a brief word of exhortation. He gives a long message here. But Paul begins walking through the Old Testament. Now think about this. He is being asked, no doubt because of his credentials as a Pharisee, being raised at the feet of Gamaliel, a famous rabbi. He is the honored guest. Oh, we've heard of Saul of Tarsus. Saul, would you like to give a message? And Saul says, oh, would I? This will be great. So Saul stands up. He has right now an open door like you cannot imagine to speak the gospel. And I just want to give a word of encouragement. I got this idea from Kevin DeYoung's sermon on this. He gave this point. I thought this was helpful. Occasionally in our lives, not every day, we get an opportunity that is just a wide open door to talk to someone about Jesus. I mean, there is just no effort on our part. Someone literally asks us about our thoughts about Scripture, or someone asks you, you know, I've seen a change in your life, and I know you've talked a lot about church and Jesus. What, are, what is it about Jesus that you're so interested in? And in those moments, your jaw about drops open because you can't believe someone's actually asking who's not a believer, and you get these wide open doors of opportunity. Maybe you, were, maybe you grew up as not, not a Christian, and you were converted, and suddenly you have coworkers or roommates who are asking you questions about your faith, and they want to know more. And that is a golden opportunity to be able to talk about Jesus. And Paul gets a wide open door. And think about this. Paul, what does he do? He starts on pretty much the same footing as they would already be. He starts with their Old Testament. They already believe the Old Testament's the Word of God. Why not start with the Old Testament? So he starts back in Genesis 12, and he gives you a brief summary of the entire history of the Old Testament. He just one sentence per book almost. He just moves straight through the Old Testament, and he knows that the Old Testament is leading somewhere. So this first point, again, is promises made, promises made. I will just tell you that maybe you have had in college, if you ever did this, you may have had a speech class. And uh, I just remember my first semester of college uh, having a speech class, and my professor told us, he gave us broad categories that we could use to speak from, but he gave us really no rules. I mean, once we had the basic structure, there were no rules about the topic. You could pretty much talk about whatever you want. That's a wide open door, is it not? I, okay, I'll just tell you, it's dangerous to give a positive illustration of yourself because it can sound self-righteous, okay? But this is one moment out of a thousand where I've failed, where, where the Lord gave me some courage, and my, my first semester of college, the professor gave us a five-minute speech, and we could really do it on almost anything. And so, I chose to, to tell a story about something that was important to me, and then I, I, started, I, I, I quoted Jesus and some things at the end about the gospel, and this is to a you know, secular class, not a huge class, less than 30 people probably. And I will tell you that the strangest thing, when I got to campus that day, I started having this, I shouldn't have planned it this way feeling, like, oh no, they're going to think I'm some wingnut, and this is going to sound crazy, and I'm going to be talking about Jesus to my secular professor, he's going to think I'm crazy, to flunk me on this thing, and I, he does not want me to talk about the gospel at the end of this. So, I'm, I'm having this, I remember walking around sitting on some benches behind the building, and I was just sitting there going, like, God, please help me, please help me, I do not want to do, I feel so scared now, I feel like I'm going to be judged or whatever it may be. 
And so, by God's grace, I was able to deliver this short talk, and I quoted Jesus and some things about the gospel at the end of my message. And uh, one uh, student, a young guy in the room who was about my age, maybe 19 or so years old, he told me afterwards how much that had meant to him personally. I don't know that he was a believer, but he just told me that it was, a, it was an encouragement to him. So again, when there's a wide open door, uh, ask for God's grace and step through it and, and use that as an opportunity to speak a word about Christ. So, promises made. I, I want to focus here on God's sovereignty over human history, especially over the history of Israel. Now, you're just going to have to bear with me on this because I'm, it's going to take me a moment to work through this, but I, I want to quote a lot of passages as I, as I do this. And um, look with me starting at verse 16. I'm going to show you all the verbs that I can find that are attached to God in this sermon. And I will just tell you, this is a more God-centered sermon than I can… You could. You cannot imagine a sermon that is more God-centered than this sermon. It is astonishing, shocking. I don't know any Christian, really, that talks this way, but Paul is saturated with the providence and sovereignty of God in these verses. So, look with me here. I'm not going to quote every verse. I'm just going to quote portions of the verses. Middle of verse 16, men of Israel, you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers. That's number one. Number two, He made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. With uplifted hand, number three, He led them out. He, for 40 years, He put up with them in the wilderness. Next, He destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan. Next, He gave them their land as an inheritance. Verse 20, after 450 years, He gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Verse 21, then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. When He had removed him, so God removed Saul, He then what? He raised up David to be their king. Verse 23, of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as He promised. Verse 26, brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent. By who? By God. Sent the message of this salvation. Verse 30, 27, for those who live in Jerusalem and the rulers, because they did not recognize Him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them. God saw to it that they fulfilled the prophecies by condemning Jesus, though they had found no guilt worthy of death. Verse 30, but God raised Him from the dead. Verse 32, and we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this He has fulfilled to us by raising Jesus from the dead. Verse 33, God has begotten Jesus. Verse 34, He has raised Him from the dead. He has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Verse 35, therefore He says in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption for David after he served the purpose of God in his own generation fell asleep, but he whom God raised from the dead did not see corruption. Do you, do you see the point? Well, What's history? History is God's doing. Everything that happens is what God did. God did it. God chose Abraham. God made them great in Egypt. If you hold your spot here, turn with me to Psalm 105, because I want you to see that this is not an isolated thing in Scripture, that Scripture in both Testaments speaks in these kinds of ways about God's sovereignty over history. As you're turning there, remember, God's sovereignty never rules out human accountability and human responsibility. God's sovereignty and human ac accountability are somehow perfectly united in the mind of God, but God's sovereignty is taught as being complete over everything. Every molecule in the universe, God is reigning over. And look at Psalm 105. I'm going to read another extended passage. And listen again to the verbs. This passage is equally astonishing to me. Verse 12 of Psalm 105, speaking of Israel, when they were few in number of little account and sojourners in it, wandering from nation to nation, from one kingdom to another, He, that is God, allowed no one to oppress them. He rebuked kings on their account, Genesis 21, 
saying, do not touch my anointed ones, do my prophets no harm. When He summoned a famine on the land, and He broke all supply of bread, He had sent a man ahead of them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. His feet were hurt with fetters, His neck was put in a collar of iron, until what He had said come to, came to pass. The word that the, of the Lord tested Him. Look at verse 24. And the Lord made His people very fruitful and made them stronger than their foes. He, that is God, turned their hearts, that is the Egyptians, to hate His people. Wow! God's even sovereign over the evil of man. To deal craftily with His servants, He sent Moses His servant and Aaron whom He had chosen. They performed His signs among them and miracles in the land of Ham. He sent darkness and made the land dark. They did not rebel against His words. He turned their waters into blood and caused their fish to die. Their land swarmed with frogs even in the chambers of their kings. He, that is God, spoke, and there came swarms of flies and gnats throughout their country. He gave them hail for rain and fiery lightning bolts through their land. He struck down their vines and fig trees and shattered the trees of their country. He spoke, and the locusts came, young locusts without number, which devoured all the vegetation in their land and ate up the fruit of, the, of their ground. He struck down all the firstborn in their land, the firstfruits of all their strength. Then He brought out Israel with silver and gold, and there was none among His tribes who stumbled. Egypt was glad when they departed, for dread of them had fallen upon it. He spread a cloud for a covering and fire to give light by night. They asked, and He brought quail and gave them bread from heaven in abundance. He opened the rock, and water gushed out. It flowed through the desert like a river, for He remembered His holy promise and Abraham his servant. So he brought his people out with joy, his chosen ones with singing, and he gave them the lands of the nations, and they took possession of the fruit of the people's toil, that they might keep his statutes and observe his laws. Praise the Lord. I do think Christians sometimes will hesitate to attribute that much sovereignty to God over history. Every detail, he did it. Even when the Egyptians turned against Israel and hated them, it says He turned their hearts to hate His people. I mean, this is absolute sovereignty of God. Every locust was part of God's sovereign plan. All the responses of Egypt are part of God's plan. And Paul is picking up on this Old Testament theme, and his sermon sounds just like Psalm 105. God is in the heavens, and He does as He pleases without in any way uh, wrecking human accountability and human responsibility. God is still sovereign and supreme over it uh, at the very same time. That is a mystery that we cannot fully comprehend, but that is clearly taught in the Bible. I just, I just want to say, it is not necessary that we understand how God can be completely in control over everything, and we can be responsible for our decisions. We don't have to understand how those puzzle pieces fit together. We're not called to do that, and the Bible never really tries to explain it. What must be enough for us is that the Bible teaches both. The Bible teaches God's absolute sovereignty over every molecule of the universe and that we are responsible for our decisions, that, that our sin is our accountability and responsibility, and both of those are taught clearly throughout Scripture. But turn with me back to uh, Acts chapter 13. Just to summarize quickly, what Paul is pointing out is that God chose Abraham and He promised to bless the nations through him. He made His people prosperous in Egypt. He brought them out with a mighty hand. Why? To defeat the Egyptian gods, the so-called gods, and defeated them with, with the plagues. He brings them out through the Red Sea. He brings them into the land. He's the one that gets the credit for the destruction of the peoples there who were uh, locked in evil for centuries, the, the Canaanites' peoples. And God brings them in, and He gives them judges, and then He gives them Saul. And then where is, where is Paul going with this sermon? He wants to get to David because David becomes the type 
of the true and better David, the Lord Jesus Christ. So, in the Old Testament, what are we promised? God will bless all nations through Abraham and his seed. That seed is most clearly seen through the Davidic king who will bless the nations and the Davidic king who truly dies for sinners and blesses the nations is Jesus, the true son of David and the son of God. So, all of history, God's promises are heading towards Jesus. All is heading towards Him and God's sovereign mercy. Now, point number two, promises are kept. This point really begins at verse 26, but I'll mention verse 23. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as He promised. Verse 26, brothers, the sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize Him, nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning Him. Well, how does Jesus fulfill prophecy? I want to mention five things, and you could mention many more, but five things that are mentioned in the passage. Number one, Jesus fulfills prophecy by being innocent, righteous, sinless. Isaiah 50, I gave my face to those who struck, I gave my beard to those who would pull it out, but what does He say in that very passage? Don't want to misquote it. He says this, the Lord God has opened my ear, I was not rebellious, I turned not backward, I gave my back to those who strike, and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard, I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. The prediction was the son of David would be a sinless one. Isaiah 53 says similarly, verse 9, he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. So, Jesus, it is of utmost importance to affirm the sinless perfection of Jesus. If Jesus was a sinner, we do not have a Savior in Jesus. Jesus had to be the spotless Lamb of God in order to take away sin, and He did that. Number two, He had to die for sinners. You see here that Luke mentions in verse 29 of Acts 13 that they took Him down from the tree. And these references to a tree, not the way typically crucifixion was described. Luke is referring back, as Paul does in Galatians, to Deuteronomy 21, verses 22 and 23, which say, anyone hanged on a tree is cursed of God. And so, why is the innocent one hanging on a tree cursed of God? He's dying not for his sins. He doesn't have any. He's dying for the sins of others, for all who will turn and trust in Him. Number three, Jesus fulfills the prophecy of being buried. Isaiah 53, verse 9, they made His grave with the wicked and with a rich man in His death. So, Jesus is going to be buried in a, wicked pers- in a rich person's borrowed grave. This may interest a few of you. You guys know about the Dead Sea Scrolls. We talk about them occasionally. Dead Sea Scrolls are important, not because they mention Jesus, they don't. The Dead Sea Scrolls are Old Testament books and commentaries on Old Testament books written before the birth of Jesus. 
They were lost to history for 2,000 years by the Qumran, the Essene community at the Qumran Caves. They were hidden away before they were killed by the Romans in AD 70. They were discovered by a Jewish shepherd boy as he was, the, the legend has it, I don't know if this is exactly true, but he was throwing rocks up into this uh, hole in the side of the hill. He ended up hearing something shatter in the rock, inside the hill. He comes, comes back with his father, climbs down the side of the cliff face. Some of you have been to Qumran, you can climb into the hills. And they discovered broken pottery. Inside the pottery were fragments of scrolls, ancient scrolls. Most of them are the size of confetti. One person said it might, they might be better to call them the Dead Sea confetti because most of them are about this big, the pieces that are left. But there are a few that were complete intact books. Now, this should make your, 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 the goosebumps rise up. We, the greatest book found, I mean, easily the greatest find, I mean, this is worth millions of dollars. It's there in Jerusalem to this day. It is called the Great Isaiah Scroll. And that is a good name for this find because it is a complete copy of Isaiah. Okay, a complete copy of Isaiah written about 150 years before the birth of Jesus. That's amazing. Even secular scholars will agree that that is the case, that this is real. And you can go online and you can pull up the great Isaiah scroll on Google and you can put the mouse over any verse on the Isaiah scroll and it will translate it into English for you. I do this in class sometimes. My students are like, whoa, that's kind of cool. So you can pull it up and you can put your mouse over Isaiah 53 and you can read the verse, they will make his grave with the rich in his death. Just astonishing. He had done no violence. There was no deceit in his mouth. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has caused his grief. All those verses are right there in a copy of Isaiah that predates Jesus by 150 years. And the prediction, not just that he would die for sinners, not just that he was sinless with no deceit in his mouth, the actual prediction he would be buried in the borrowed tomb of the rich is in that copy, the Dead Sea Scroll copy of Isaiah. And what, is, what happens to Jesus? Joseph of Arimathea, a rich man with a tomb that no one had ever laid in takes Jesus down, risking his reputation, identifying with Jesus. He's a member of the Sanhedrin, the very group that voted to have Jesus killed. And he goes, Pilate, can I bury him in my tomb? Pilate gives him permission. He buries him in this rich man's tomb, and that's where the Easter story takes place, a tomb where no one had ever laid. And the fourth way in which Jesus fulfills prophecy, also in Isaiah 53, and there's other passages. Now listen to this. So we just heard about his death and burial. Now listen to these words. Out of the anguish of his soul, this is him dying, he will see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, God says, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death and was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many, making intercession for the transgressors. But don't miss this. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring and prolong his days. How can a dead person who's been buried in a rich person's tomb see his offspring and prolong his days? There's only one answer. The person who was dead, buried in a tomb, sealed up, was at one point going to no longer be in that tomb. He was going to have prolonged days. The way dead people have prolonged days is a resurrection. And so the prediction of Jesus' resurrection from the dead is right there in Isaiah 53 for all to see with the eyes of faith. It is right there in the passage, and Jesus, of course, rises from the dead. Jesus Himself also said, just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And then what? He's coming back from the dead. So Jesus saw Jonah's story as also pointing toward His own resurrection. The last thing, number five, that Jesus fulfilled in His death and resurrection 
is that he was the true son of David. So if you're with me back in Acts 13, let me reread a few verses here. Verse 30, or verse 29, and when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us their children by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second psalm. You are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that He raised Him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, He has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, He says also in another psalm, Psalm 16, you will not let your holy one see corruption, for after David had served the purpose of God in his own generation, he fell asleep and was laid with the fathers and saw corruption, but he whom God raised up did not see corruption." few brief comments here. Greg covered this well a few months ago in Acts 2, but I'll just repeat some of that because Peter preaches a similar point here in his sermon. We are told in Psalm 2 that the Davidic king is called God's son, and the day in which he is put on the throne, he is begotten of God. Do you understand this language, this kind of metaphorical language? I'm just, I'm just telling you, there are some cults who will use this verse to say Jesus was created, that God begot him at a certain point in the past. That's not what this is saying. What this is referring to is when the Davidic king is placed, it's an enthronement psalm. When the Davidic king is put on the throne, he is begotten of God. In that sense, he becomes God's son and God becomes his father. David is called son of God. God is his father, Solomon. Remember, God says, you will have a son. He will be to me a son, and I will be his father. And when he sins, I will discipline him with the rods of men. That's referring to Solomon. So the Davidic king was called the son of God, and God was his father. And the day that the Davidic king was put on the throne, he was begotten of God. Well, Jesus at his resurrection does what? He ascends to heaven and is put on the throne of David at God's right hand. In that sense, he is begotten of God. He is placed on the throne of David in heaven, fulfilling the prophecies there. And Psalm 16 says that David's body saw corruption, but the Holy One will not see corruption. You know, there was concern with Lazarus who was in the grave for not three days, but four days, that there would be a bad odor when they opened the stone. Mary and Martha are concerned about that because His body was beginning to decay. But Jesus was in the tomb for the, the three days, part of Friday, Saturday, part of Sunday, the three days in Jewish reckoning, and He did not have time for His body to decay. He was raised from the dead and never saw and never will see corruption. So, Jesus is the true son of David. Okay, third point of the sermon, a response is required. Now, this is Paul again, and man, doesn't this sound just like Paul's letters? He would let her later write. Look at verses 38 and 39. This sounds like Romans. This sounds like Galatians. Let it be known to you, therefore, Paul says, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is literally justified or freed from everything from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. Does justification sound like a Pauline concept to you? I mean, this is something Paul loves to talk about. It's the only time the word justification occurs in the whole book of Acts, and whose mouth is it in? It's in Paul's. Why? Because Luke is accurately recording history. The apostle most known for the doctrine of justification is the only one to use the word in the book of Acts. This is Paul talking, no doubt about it. He talks about forgiveness of sins and justification. How? Look at verse 41, the end of the verse. I'm doing a work in your days, a work that you would not believe 
even if you were told. So how are you forgiven and justified? By believing. This is justification by faith in Paul's mouth in the book of Acts, just like in Romans 3 and 4 and Galatians chapter 2. What does this mean? What is he saying here? Well, let me start with the bad news, and then I'll give you the good news here. Let's look with the bad news first. Verse 40, beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astonished and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe even if one tells it to you. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. Here is the warning. Paul is saying, to whom much is given, much is required. Paul says, I just unpacked to you a Jewish audience and some God-fearing Gentiles. He mentions the fearers of God. He says, I, I just told you from the Old Testament all the way up till now, the prophecies that are fulfilled in Jesus, the Son of David. I spoke of His innocence, His atoning death for sinners, His actual factual death, burial, and His resurrection, His appearance to many witnesses. This was not a hallucination by one person in a room. This is not a dream somebody had one night. This is numerous appearances, physically, bodily, in front of other people, eating food, walking on water, preparing breakfast, all these different things. Not walking on water, walking beside the water. In John chapter 21, preparing breakfast, doing all these different things in His resurrection body. This is not a couple of crazy people with some crazy idea. This is not some sort of hallucinatory situation. This is not what that is. This is sane and sober people willing to risk and give their lives for this story who say that they have seen, talked with, eaten with, shaken hands with, seen the scars, the nail marks on his body of the risen Jesus in the 40 days that followed his resurrection. This is not mythology. This is not something made up. This is not a fairy tale. This is not a group collusion. This is not some sort of story made up, not mythology. This is literal factual history that Jesus was raised from the dead and seen by others. And Paul's saying, I have told you the gospel clearly. If you will believe this good news, you will be forgiven and justified and freed from sin in a way that the law of Moses could never free you. You see a Pauline theme, a New Testament theme? The law of God doesn't matter how hard you try to keep it. The law of God cannot save you. So just confronting here, I don't know what everyone may be thinking about this, but the most common false religion in the world today is not, you know, Islam or Hinduism or Buddhism or whatever it may be. That's not the most… The most common false religion in the world is that if there's a God, I'm a basically good person and He will accept me. That's the most common false belief about God, and it's the most serious false belief about God you can almost imagine. And the answer here is, by law-keeping, no one will be saved. Doesn't matter how hard we try. Jesus is the only way that we can be made right with God, and if we accept that, we are forgiven. If we reject that, he says there is a warning of judgment that may, that will come upon us. Last comment here before we move towards the Lord's table. I'm going to read one more time verses 42 and 43. As they went out that is of the synagogue, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. Many of them are intrigued. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism 
followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. It is not enough to make a profession of faith. It is not enough to pray a sinner's prayer. Genuine saving faith, genuine repentance is a transformation of nature that is a lasting transformation. It affects you for the rest of your life. I know I harp on this point a lot, but it's right here in the text. Continue in the grace of God. There are many who start out in the grace of God and appear to be genuinely born again, but over time grow callous to the Word, over time grow numb to it, and begin to slowly fall off the trail. And Paul says, do not expect that the one who receives the Word with joy but later falls away will experience salvation. It is only those who continue in the grace of God, who love the grace of God, who cherish the grace of God, who've been transformed by the grace of God, who delight in the grace of God, who love to talk about the grace of God, read about the grace of God, pray and thank God for His grace in our lives. It is those who continue in the grace of God who bear the marks of repentance that, uh, as John the Baptist said, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. So, as we hear the message… Number one, if you are not a believer, the gospel is free and available because of Christ's sacrifice by simple faith. It can be yours. For those who are professing believers but don't know if they're really continuing in the grace of God, I would say this is a perfect moment to repent, to trust in Christ genuinely and truly, and to begin walking with Him afresh. And for those who have been walking with the Lord, uh, now is the time to examine our hearts as we come before the time of communion. Now, on the night before Jesus's, or the night of Jesus's betrayal, after the Last Supper, or during the Last Supper, He said to His disciples, picking up the cup, He said, this cup is the new covenant, which is My blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. All of you drink from it. And He took up the bread, and He said, this bread is My body given for you. All of you eat of this. And so, these elements here are not magical in any way. If you are not a believer, we would actually ask you to refrain from taking these elements. What you need is not the elements, but what those elements represent, which is Jesus' body and blood shed for sinners. But if you're a believer and you are walking in repentance of sin, not in unrepentance right now, or not out of fellowship uh, with another believer because of, of unrepentant sin, we would ask you to, in this moment, in, in the quietness of your heart, to speak to the Lord, to confess any sin that is lingering, and to thank Him for the forgiving grace that He offers, and to come forward as you choose, to take of the elements and return to your seat and then we will sing together in just a moment. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank You for Your gospel, which doesn't start in Matthew, it starts in Genesis. As You spoke to Eve and said that Your seed would come, He would crush the serpent's head and be struck on the heel. The gospel is preached to Abraham, as you said, in you all the nations will be blessed through your seed, who is Jesus. The gospel was preached as we are told that David would have a throne and it would never be taken away from him, and that is ultimately fulfilled through Jesus who sits forever resurrected on the throne of David ruling over your people. And God, I pray even now as we come forward to take of these elements that you would help us to be in awe of what they represent the way in which You have shown great love for Your people, and help us to worship You in spirit and in truth. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.